Welcome to Some Would Say. Casual chats for curious people. Your weekly podcast hosted by us, Amelia Rose and Lara May, unpacking all things life from the arts to well-being, from work to play and hearing what others have to say. Today, we chat to Julia Giganti, who specializes in educational and developmental psychology. We talk about what life is like working with children and families so closely, tools to help you overcome these mentally challenging times, and the process of diagnosing ADHD and autism. We like to keep it real here at Some Would Say, so don't be surprised if you hear the wiggles on in the background, some screams or boob sucking from time to time. Julia is a super mum to Alba and a wealth of knowledge to us. We can't wait to share with you what she had to say. Welcome, Julia, to the podcast. Thank you. And welcome, Alba, her little bubba who's yeah. laying around on the floor next to us. Yes. Just watching. Well, Julia, something that we ask all our guests, if we were to take you on a night out, what is your DJ song request and why? And what would we order you to drink? I had to Google the song name because you know that Fat Man Scoop song, and Crooklyn Clan. It's, it's called Be Faithful, but I didn't oh, know yes. that. I didn't know that that's what it was called. Bass drop, bass yeah, drop. Yeah. Oh, because like oh, when we're in the song, oh, I can hear Be Faithful, and I was like, "What is it called?" So yeah, yeah. I feel like that is just like no one can stop Top themselves that. from like dancing because you know me. I like just love to dance. Yes. And I feel like I was thinking like, what song would like get me out of my chair like every time? And I feel like that one is the one. Yes. I feel yeah. like that's on par with Return of the Mac. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so that and then my drink, um, a Moscato. Just Ooh. a classic Moscato, yeah. I just love like sweet something. I don't sweet. think anyone's ever answered with that, no. like oh, even man, in my I personal it life. Be so like so common. Wow. Because yeah, I just like well, I don't drink wine or beer or cider. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'll have a mocktail or a Moscato. Julia, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and who you are. Yeah, so um I guess I'm just a 31-year-old woman. Um, I have a, a baby, as you guys said. First-time mum, obviously, um, with my husband, James. I was born in South Africa and grew up in South Africa until um, 14 years old. We moved to Australia. So my parents are actually, my dad's Italian and my mum's Irish. So that oh, was wow. like a very interesting cultural, you know, mix Experience. for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, so now I've been living in... Australia since 14 and yeah sort of lived my adult life here and gotten into psychology as we'll talk about in a bit love to dance I do I do dance classes done a couple with Lara before Mm. (laughs) yeah um yeah I don't know that's me why did you move to Australia oh parents moved here yeah yeah moved with my parents um a lot of people immigrate out of South Africa obviously yeah um so I'm from Johannesburg, which is like right. literally one of the dangerous, most the hood. dangerous cities in yeah. the world. <laughs> and it's funny because you don't, um, when you're born into it, like I was born and raised in Johannesburg or my family's still there, you don't realise that, you know, that the way that you're living is quite different to mm-hmm. um, a country like Australia, which is relatively safe and that kind of thing. Yeah, obviously lots of crime in Johannesburg and mm. I think my parents wanted to you know, have a, a better life for, for me. And not not that our life was bad in South Africa. It's actually really easy to live quite a, a nice lifestyle. Like, because obviously in South Africa, the cost of living is a lot lower. Mm-hmm. So you can afford nicer houses, nicer cars if you're on like a good income. Mm-hmm. But obviously the payoff is like your personal safety. You might die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we... <laughs> you might die. Oh, yeah. We well, went on a know. trip to South yeah. Africa in... Um, in 2019 with some friends and it's when we had to stop by the airport on the way home we had to stop at Johannesburg I went from Perth to Johannesburg and then to Cape Town and in Johannesburg like no one left the airport except for like two of our mates and and like we had no idea where they'd gone because we'd been on different flights to get to Johannesburg and we're like where the fuck are you? <laughs> like, and they're like, oh, we're just hanging out in Johannesburg. Like, we'll be back soon. <gasps> See, that's the thing. It's night time. Like, yeah. It's like 9 p.m. We're like, 
uh, do you have a death wish? Like, yeah. And then when we got to Perth Airport, we all watched the Louis Theroux documentary of like him and Johannesburg interviewing all these criminals, and they're like, "Oh my god, yeah, <laughs> yeah." Because like, if if you don't know if if you're not a local or if you don't know the city, there's places where you absolutely don't go, mm. like the Johannesburg town centre. You, you don't go into town. Wow. There's certain like areas that you know are just more notorious for being really dangerous but at the same time there's you know absolutely beautiful parts of of Mm. Joburg that you can go and like have a beautiful spa day you can you know go to an awesome restaurant go to cafes I mean like when I things that many people wouldn't realize unless you grew up there yeah yeah and like so if you know someone and you know you kind of get a, a bit of like some some tips and that kind of thing um you can have you know the most beautiful like holiday but you just need to be careful of, of certain places and areas and that kind of thing. Well, for everyone listening, you would have heard in our intro that Julia specialises in educational and developmental psychology. We'd love you to talk through your career pathway a little and how you came to be in this field. Yeah, so definitely it wasn't a linear sort of process at all. So I straight out of high school, I went into uni. Um, I started in like a generic arts degree and I did that for about a year but I just couldn't see where that would leave me at at the end people would ask me like oh so what are you going to be I was like oh don't actually know (laughs) notorious question I did a health science degree it's the same yeah I was like oh gosh I need to be more specific so anyways I was thinking about it for a while and then I thought okay maybe I'll go into teaching so I changed around um I like signed up at the same uni I was going to start a bachelor of um education and like literally the day before, I just had, I don't know what it was, like an epiphany or a, like an aha moment. And I was like, oh my God, like I don't want to be a teacher. I don't know why. I think just because I was so desperate. I mean, I'm like, what, 18, 19, still don't really know, like, mm. you know, where I am in life. Yeah. Um, but I thought, no, it just doesn't sit right with me. And I'd done a few psychology like electives um, in the year before, like in that arts degree that I was doing and I was like okay let me just go back to psychology stick it out for a bit and see how it goes so then I signed up um, for an undergrad in psychological science and then I kind of just stuck with it but I didn't know that to become a registered psychologist you actually need a lot more training after your undergrad so you need to do the four-year undergrad Um, at the end of that you know you're not a psychologist or anything close you still have to do a master's degree so at the end of my undergrad I then um I took a year off to just um work and then came back to uni to do my master's in educational and developmental psychology and then so that was another two years and then after that I came out as a registered psychologist and um even to get the specialization that I have, which is educational and developmental psychology, I had to do an extra two years after my master's of um, specialist sort of training. So, wow. (laughs) But all these things, like I didn't know from the beginning. So I didn't know that my whole journey would take, well, it was like seven years at uni plus another two years of specialisation. At the beginning, I had no idea. So I kind Mm. of just like kept on rolling with it it, and I was enjoying it. I was liking the work that I was doing. So I was like, I'm just going to keep keep going and yeah wow um, finish it like yeah and here you are (laughs) here I am yeah so developmental psychology is the study of age-related changes in thinking and behavior uh take us through the standard developmental stages for a human Oh my gosh, this is a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, no tell pressure. Us everything in your uni degree yeah, yeah. in five <laughs> minutes. Like that, hey? Okay, so I guess there's no one that there is no one universal, um, agreed upon kind of theory about the way that humans develop and behave and the way our personality develops and our cognition to like our thinking and and all of that stuff but there's a few main kind of like theorists out there that have different sort of schools of thought about um yeah how how humans come to be the the way that they are in terms of their behavior and cognition and, and thinking and learning and that kind of thing I mean one of the like popular theorists is like Freud everyone knows about his you know theory of like psychosexual development where you know 
like have you guys you guys know a bit about Freud in, in terms of he's the he's the one that has the you know the idea that we go through different like sexual stages when we're infants and it's all to do with our sexual urges and the way that we overcome those sexual urges is to learn things like to inhibit your desires and things like that Mm -hmm. that's a bit of a like so that's a controversial sort Mm. of one because it is yeah. I'm going to nod and say, I've definitely heard of Freud. Oh, Freud, yeah. Yeah. Freud, that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you, you, like, oh, you know that saying, um, oh, that was a Freudian slip? Oh, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, I literally yeah. was saying that the yeah. other day to someone, but I, here's me. Like, I was saying that and have no idea where the context <laughs> came from. And anyways, but um, so, you know, there's, there's those sorts of ideas. And then there's other theorists like um this guy called his name's eric erickson very yeah inter- interesting name but <laughs> he, he's got like a psychosocial model of development that sort of says that at different ages in our life we have a specific conflict that we need to <laughs> overcome and then once right. we've overcome that conflict we can move to the next stage in our life so you know for example the one that i, I thought of as an example was like in our teenage years the the conflict that we go through that sort of defines that period in most people's lives is um, between like our um, our identity versus role confusion so that means that during like say 12 to 18 years we go through this process of asking more questions about ourselves like who am I what's my role in the world you know as cognitively like as our brain starts to think more about future things and we become more mature that conflict is kind of the main one that we have to like work through Mm -hmm. and that might um, come out in in different ways like yeah I feel like the adolescent stage is marked a lot with um like friendship issues that come up and and that sort of reflects on that conflict at the time so your identity versus like that confusion about where you fit in 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 the world and yeah so as as um you go through different like stages in your life you go through these different conflicts and then at the end of it you're like a fully you know formed human I say that in inverted Mm. yeah so I mean that's just like an example of standard or an example of human development in in the psychology sense anyways but yeah yeah. but we're all on the spectrum aren't we somewhere where everyone falls somewhere and so I guess we're all going to learn at different stages yeah exactly everyone's brain makeup is different as well like with um they are theories so Mm -hmm. I mean it's hard like there's no there's no tried and true test to say, well, actually, for this is everyone, how it should be. this is how you develop. Because obviously, there's you know so many different variables in everyone's lives, and mm. yeah. Alba's having a little dance on the floor there. <laughs> Can you hear her? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna quickly give her a toy no, to keep her okay. hands occupied. That's okay. Yeah. She's like, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Freud. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this kind of leads on to the second question because in our research, I don't really know much about um, developmental psychology or just psychology at all, to be honest. Um, And I found in our research, there's a few debates, for lack of a better word, within developmental psychology. So what's your take on these debates such as nature versus nurture, abnormal behaviour versus differences, Mm, etc.? Yeah. Another really big guys got the big question. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm like, tell me everything because yeah, I know yeah. nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, the nature and nurture one is is really like it is actually really interesting, and there's so many studies that have been done to try and get an um, a specific answer, you know, to that question. Sorry, hold on, she's calling out for me. Okay, so yes, the nature and nurture debate. So there's been a lot of studies. Um, in psychology to to try and answer that question and what they um the way that they usually look at that question is by doing research on um identical twins obviously because you know identical twins will have the same genetic makeup so the same i guess like nature and then they look at um the way that the twins have been brought up and how sort of they've changed and you know how how their lives are different um given the different experiences and things like that that they've had so a a lot of the studies have also been 
with twins that have been like adopted out into different families and that kind of thing. That's always a really interesting one. Obviously nowadays it doesn't really happen that much, but back in the day um, with adoption and things like that, they did used to split up twins and that was a really interesting wow. way for researchers to be like, okay, so these two people have the exact same genetic makeup. So if we study them, mm-hmm. you know, we can kind of get a bit more of an idea of, okay, they had completely different lifestyles, life choices. Did they both end up having schizophrenia or something? Or, mm-hmm. you know, why why did one twin develop these sorts of mental health difficulties or um, you know th- things like that and that twin didn't and then they you know I guess that's a way to see like okay well what about their nature so their experiences and things like that you counted for those things right so wow so imagine no- being part of that research and just being like yeah like yeah. being separated from your twin is huge yeah totally. yeah it's kind of sad hey it's really sad yeah, and I know there was a few um I didn't watch it but there was like a few Netflix um shows there was one about these I think it was like about triplets that didn't know that they that they got separated. I'm sure probably oh, wow. your listeners know because like, I don't know, someone told me about it and they were like, it was such a sad documentary because it was three tri- triplet boys. They didn't know that they'd been adopted out. And one of the triplets at one stage ended up um, like taking his life <gasps> earlier on in his life. Oh and then gosh. they were looking at what, what led to that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. So, so that's the way that they used to like research and look at that question. So, is nature? So, nature is what? What's Na- like the definition? Nature, yeah. So, nature is think about it as like what you are born with, your right. genetic makeup, the things that are within you, regardless of what's yeah, outside of, of you. You yeah. know, your experience and what's happened. It's the way that your brain was formed at the very like crudest level. It's literally just your genetic makeup. makeup. And then nurture is your experiences, your environment. And another thing like in psychology that's really interesting that kind of ties the nature and nurture debate together is something called epigenetics, which like I'm not going to get too much into it because there's a whole like field of study about it. But it basically is the idea that people might be, you know, so twins or siblings or, you know, people might have the same genetic makeup so the same DNA they you know um, within them they are sort of similar but their experiences will affect the way that their DNA is um, expressed or the way that you know Mm. so and what have you got to say about this album (laughs) (laughs) have you got some comments about nature versus nurture you'd like to share with us Eat, eat your breadstick quietly. <laughs> Wish I could eat breadsticks all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I'm gonna> <laughs> yeah. Literal goals. <laughs> gonna have some cheese and wine with that, man. This is gonna get so soggy. That's the thing about having kids. Just um, everything gets to, soggy. Yeah, everything soggy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things about like epigenetics is that um, trauma. Like, if someone experiences mm. a trauma in their life that can often impact behaviour and their and their learning and stuff like that. But it's actually more so also about what genes have kind of gotten switched on or like activated from, from that trauma. So, you know, for example, two people can have an underlying propensity to develop a certain mental illness. So, for example... Um, you know, say say something as kind of like severe as schizophrenia, for example. Not a very common mental illness, but two people can have the same propensity like within their genetics. So they can have a family history of schizophrenia. One person can go through, you know, a certain event in their life that kind of can trigger that schizophrenia. It can, yeah. or can, can trigger those sort of genes and then they end up you know, developing that diagnosis, whereas the other person, it can kind of stay like underlying, it can stay dormant because of their life experiences. They never have this event or they never go through something that brings that out. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. interesting. Yeah. 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 And it makes a lot of sense to think about that because, you know, experiences, I feel like they really shape us in, Mm. in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As a psychologist, you're exposed to so much. How do you take care of yourself and not get burnt out? Like you must have some some self-care yeah, techniques yeah. under your belt. Definitely. It, it depends a lot about the, the type of work. I think as a psychologist, you can work in a lot of different sort of areas, seeing 
different types of clients. At the moment, I do quite different work than what I used to do. So I, I used to be in private practice, which means that sort of um, anything could come through the door and I, you know, you, d- you don't know until the client's there. You kind of have to be prepared to hear anything. I mainly worked with um, children and families anyways, mm-hmm. and I chose to, as in within what I was comfortable working with, what I was really experienced working with was, you know, I guess typical anxiety, um, like learning difficulties, diagnostic questions like autism, ADHD, that type of thing. I, I chose to not see clients who had gone through significant traumas because that's simply not for, for the client's sake. That's not my specific area of of sort of like training and expertise. Yeah. There's a lot of psychologists out there that have worked a lot in, in trauma and, and can serve their clients better. So I, f- I feel like at the outset, you know, that's something important for a psychologist to recognise their scope of practice, recognise what they are trained and what they're experienced to deal with, what they're comfortable to work with clients about and sort of where they draw the line. Thinking of the safety and well-being of both parties for the client themselves. I don't want to have clients come to me who've experienced these traumas and really want to work through things and I'm not able to provide that same level. Like I, I can see them and I can certainly do therapy with them and address some of the issues but not to the level that other they more require experience. maybe yeah, um, yeah like psychologists that have gone through specific like trauma training have so so that's one way I guess that is a self-care I think because it's yeah. just sort of it's about ba- boundaries like yeah, it's not just definitely. saying I'll just see anyone and, and everyone you obviously do you know here and I, I saw a lot of um, kids who and and even now in my current role although I'm on maternity leave now um see a lot of families from very unfortunate backgrounds who you know I see a lot of kids in care and obviously to get a holistic picture you have to ask about their early life because that's very important to knowing how they are the way they are now it's asking questions all the way back from okay when they were born and even you know in the pregnancy what was their experience because we know that even um, babies in utero if they've been exposed to trauma if there was domestic violence or things going on while the baby was in the womb, we know that that can actually affect their development from then. Because if you think about it, the mum's stressed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's literally connected to your mum. Lots of stress hormones. (laughs) And, you know, so that's going to impact the baby as well. Sorry. So, so that's why when when I see clients, we ask questions starting from way way back, like yeah. even from yeah what what the pregnancy was like. So I do hear, even though I've got that sort of rule for myself, you do hear just because of the area that we're in. You know, you do hear people's stories and really um, you know sad things. But the way I yeah deal with it is, I, I guess, come home and debriefing with James is a really nice thing because we're in similar. James is her husband for anyone listening. (laughs) Um, He he gets it because he is in a similar, he works in in mental health as well. So yeah, it's it's really good having someone to debrief with and to talk to and yeah. I think I'm just going to get her on my boob. Yeah, that's okay. We take a break for the boob. (laughs) (laughs) Today's sponsor is the boob. (laughs) One thing I wanted to say before, when you were talking about talking about nature and nurture, and then you were also saying about like normal versus abnormal. Yeah, it was Um, abnormal behavior versus differences. Yeah, yeah. I feel like um, these days a lot of people pathologize normal behavior. So what I mean by that is like if someone likes to have a really neat house they'll be like oh I have OCD or (laughs) if someone um you know is really busy one day or like a bit distracted they'll be like oh I have ADHD you know so that means like that's what I mean by pathologizing like um you know giving themselves a diagnosis for something that might just be yeah or or thinking that um some some behaviors or some ways of being are abnormal then that's like they've they've got some pathology as in like they've got some diagnosis to explain that behavior and sometimes it's like in a joking way but I do feel like um, and especially the presentations that I get in in my job is that it is a lot more common for people to and especially for parents and and adults identifying behaviors in kids that 
are kind of on, you know, normal, like a a variation of of normal, but they tend to be a bit more worried about it because I guess nowadays we know so much more about like autism and ADHD and and all of those sort of developmental disabilities, but also like mental um, health diagnoses like Mm -hmm. anxiety and depression and that kind of thing. So in one sense, I feel like, it's like we're hyper aware. Yeah, exactly. Society is more hyper aware of of those things, and so questions, you know, kids' behaviors, and says like, "Oh, could that be such and such X Y Z?" But bearing in mind, like when we do assessments for those things, a very important thing to always consider is that there is a threshold for when behaviors become sort of in that range of abnormal being that it's more than what we would expect of a, a typical child's behavior mm. um and and that's I, I think it makes my job is especially in terms of doing the assessments and and providing um diagnoses it gets a bit tricky because often when parents present they've already got so much information from the community you know so from from maybe like teachers or from family friends that have said they're super interested in dinosaurs and don't like um going out you know in in crowded shopping centers they block their ears and they hate it that must be autistic kind of thing because those are some you know they they can be symptoms um, or characteristics of autism but we need to look and especially in like educational and developmental psychology we look at okay at this age for this child what is like what can we consider not normal behavior or typical behavior for that age because obviously as as children go through different ages some fears are kind of expected or some behaviors are expected kids do tend to get a bit obsessed with certain topics at different ages so you know you ask any like four five year old if they like bluey or if if they like you know thomas the tank Mm -hmm. engine and that kind of thing it's kind of normal to be really into that we need to keep that in mind of different age groups you know what's what's normal and what isn't but then also look at a lot of other explanations for that behavior so one of the common things that you know can sort of muddy the waters a bit when looking at those diagnoses is things like you know the um, the child's experience of anxiety some some kids do have a bit of underlying anxiety and that can present as being really avoidant of certain things or doing repetitive behaviors that just help them feel calm and and um, help them kind of regulate their emotions that can sort of mimic some of those characteristics of, of ASD or autism and that kind of thing so it's just about needing to sort of pull out all of those things to make sure that we're actually barking up the right tree mm-hmm. and not sort of misdiagnosing or not over pathologizing normal behavior and I'm talking specifically in in children because in adults it's a bit easier to identify because sort of when once we reach adulthood it's, it's a bit easier to tell what's outside of the scope of like typical behavior but at the same time there can be other comorbid things so other um, things that are going on alongside of of that behavior that's concerning or that um, is is going on for that person that we need to like identify before diagnosing a certain thing it's it's a sort of soapboxy thing that we tend to get on yeah I've noticed a real trend in adults wanting to get diagnosed Mm. um, later in life lately yeah like I've I've yeah I've I've really seen it popping up here and there for some like they get a real benefit out of getting getting some kind of label and that that brings them peace because yes. like they can figure out oh that's why but for others I'm sure getting a label is the it's worst like, thing they can do and yeah. I think it really depends on the kind of person you are like totally. I think it I think if you identify too much with a label it can actually be detrimental mm, mm. Mm. and that's so right um and I'm sure he won't mind me talking about this because he's very open about it but James my husband he's 31 now he got diagnosed with ADHD when he was 29 oh so like that recent yeah, wow. yeah and the funny thing is like I obviously having the background that I do I see kids and teenagers with ADHD a lot when I met James I I just knew like (laughs) I was like and I didn't like push him down the pathway but I like talked to him about I was like you know kind of in a joking way I was like oh my gosh you so have ADHD and it was such a surprise to me that like he hadn't had that 
thought by himself before because I guess from where he was he was from it just wasn't and I guess like the um the time when he was going through school it wasn't one of those labels that was as popular as it is now Mm -hmm. um but yeah for him getting that diagnosis confirmed so he went to see you know psychiatrists and that kind of thing um and you know he absolutely got the diagnosis he started taking medication it really made a huge difference for him and and helped him especially getting on the medication that he's on to help him sort of focus and and Mm. um concentrate and that kind of thing yeah it it was a huge relief um for him and also it really like it really made him think a lot about his experience of, uh, you know, going through school um, undiagnosed because yeah. I think he... You and know, how it could have been maybe helped if he'd yeah, known earlier. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, to- totally. Do you, think it, do you think it's actually helped your relationship finding out that he... Yeah, well, like for, for me, I, you know, he's, he's the same James for me. Like it's, yeah, I and I was understanding of you know his his um quirks and his like hyperactivity and um the distractibility and that kind of thing because I was like okay I know that this isn't you know he's not doing it on purpose this is legitimately a a thing that his brain like struggles to do sometimes um but for him like having that understanding I don't know it just made us more open and communicative and when he wasn't like sometimes we we used to um sometimes have arguments where I'd be like um, talking to him and I felt like he wasn't listening mm-hmm. and I get like offended because I'd be like oh you don't you don't care what I have to say mm-hmm. but it wasn't that it was just that like he just had a huge day at work he'd come home and it's almost like his um the the resources for his brain in terms of like the concentrating and paying attention were like depleted mm-hmm. because he just spent all day sort of trying really Doing hard it. so by the time he got home it was like he just he didn't have as much of capacity, of those, yeah, mm. c- capacity to attend and that kind of thing. But then, since you know he got the diagnosis and talking about it and being on medication and that kind of thing, he like we're better at communicating now. So he'll say to me, he was like, "Oh, I I don't have the headspace now. Mm. Like, don't you know? Don't tell me that now because I just can't take it on board. So mm-hmm. it's good because mm-hmm. then I know I'm like, okay, wait, like now's not a good time to get into this whole discussion yeah. yep. to make decisions. Let's wait until." Um, like it's it's a good time for both of us where he can receive the information and actually you know like listen and not just me sort of talking at him when it's convenient for me yeah yeah it's interesting for me to hear that because um I've always been I've grown up in a family that's quite anti-medication if you can help Mm. it and like knowing that like he's gotten a huge benefit out of being on that is like it's good for me to to get like a another side of the story where yeah. sometimes it literally is your saving grace. Yeah. And yeah. And and so obviously with with children, like I work mainly with children anyways, that is uh, it's definitely more of a question that um parents, you know, want to think about a bit more. Like oftentimes parents don't want to go or they their immediate thought isn't like, okay, let's get this diagnosis so we can start on such and such medication. Mm. I find with, with um, children it's definitely – oh, she fell over. Um, <laughs> it's definitely more of a longer decision-making process. Like they want to know the pros and cons. Some um, parents don't – you know, they also are anti-medication, which I completely understand because it does it does have – you know, with, with certain medications, with certain kids, because it actually is um, – there's different effects depending on the child. Mm. It can, you know, change them in, in some ways in terms of their um, – not I don't want to say their personality, but obviously – oh, okay, I better get it. It's <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and also what you were saying before, like with some people getting the diagnosis isn't what they want. So mm. in my line of work, we definitely see – both sides so sometimes people come to us with challenges so their their child has been identified as you know are having some challenges like at school or they their development sort of isn't on track and they come to us to so that we can investigate what's going on some families don't have their their headspace is just not in that 
space of like, okay, this actually could be a diagnosis. So for example, with like autism, that's a lifelong diagnosis. It's not like you can give it and then you grow out of it. Um, so it's a really, it's a quite significant thing if someone is diagnosed with something like autism and the family isn't expecting it because that has a lot of Im- implications, you yeah. know, for the child growing up and things like that. So we definitely see like um, both sides where some families, yeah, don't cope that well with receiving diagnosis and others are like relieved and grateful that finally there's some sort of answer to, to what's been going on. I was going to mention before, like touching, even personally, I've heard some stories of people who were diagnosed with say ADHD or Mm. whatever Um, and that was a real hindrance on their capabilities Mm. like they believed for so long that they weren't capable of doing certain Mm. things because of this diagnosis when in fact it was almost like a little bit of a limiting belief that Mm. they had told themselves for so long Mm. Mm. Um, so yeah it's really interesting how how diagnoses can affect yeah and I think it's so dependent on the support that people get after receiving the diagnosis so in in my current role when we provide feedback we don't just say okay you know drop that bomb yes your child has this and that okay see you later (laughs) we do follow-up appointments you know they can come back and ask more clarifying questions because often what we'll find is that you know once we provide a diagnosis um, if the families haven't heard of it before or they haven't considered it they'll go away most likely go on google start looking okay what does this mean freak out (laughs) you know freak out or have more questions so we make sure like i think a, a good sort of psychologist or or clinician Mm. doctor whoever who's providing that diagnosis really needs to um, have the responsibility to you know provide a bit more support after the fact because it can really you know depend on on which way the person's going to go are they going to feel oh okay like this is really limiting this means I can't do this and that and the other Mm -hmm. or if, if they're provided with some support and know how to advocate for themselves Mm -hmm. and sort of um, come at it from like a strengths-based approach to encourage them and and support them to do what they want to do you Mm -hmm. know then that can also happen so yeah it's it's definitely about the health professionals in 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 our world to um, yeah be be that support for them or link them some sometimes we can't hold it all so we'll often link them in with other services that we think will will be the right ones. We'll be like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, if you want this and that, like here's a really good place. Um, yeah, so. Cool. Yeah. yeah. My younger brother got diagnosed with Asperger's mm. um, when he was about maybe five or six. Wow, yeah. And mum decided not to medicate him um, growing up and it was – you almost wouldn't know now that he has Asperger's because I feel Mm. like a lot of those traits you can grow out of as you get older, depending on the person, obviously, Mm. only from my first-hand experience um, living with him. But he had very intense OCD Mm. traits as well. So we'd be all – if we tried to leave the house as a family anywhere – we'd all have to be in the car with our seatbelts on so he could start his hand-washing routine. And then he'd go and do this hand-washing routine and be running the water at full tilt. Like Mm. mum would like lose her mind. Like, oh my God, the water bill is (laughs) going to be insane. And he'd come and check that we were all clicked in the car. Um, Has anyone got... I'm starting it again. If you haven't got all your seatbelts on, I'm starting my routine again. And he would lose his mind if any of us stopped him and we had to just let it be. And you'd have to plan to leave the house like two hours before you actually had to be somewhere. It was intense. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that was my experience. Yeah. But that's a good example of, you know, something that's, I guess, I'm not trying to be mean to to say this, but that's outside the scope of of normal, which is why Mm. he probably got that diagnosis Mm. because it's not like – a typical thing that mm. other boys will do in terms of you know some people really are in, into hand washing because they've got a bit of a um, germ thing mm. it sounds like what he was doing was that next level yeah. of, okay this is outside the scope of what's typical or normal and therefore we will investigate okay there's probably more going on there and then he got that diagnosis because mm. it is quite unusual this other sort of rules that he had of you being all clicked in and that kind of thing so that's a good example of how they were right to provide that diagnosis because it's not just oh he likes to wash his hands Mm. often and he also had to just be he couldn't 
not be honest. Like he'd go to school <laughs> and want to tell the girl he liked about his OCD hand washing oh, routine. Oh. And he'd come home and be like, should I tell like so-and-so about this? And mum was like, you know what? Some things are better left yeah. unsaid. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you're right. Cause it's not of a business, is it? Yeah. Like, no, Jesse. Anyway, he goes to school, comes back. I told her oh. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's another that was another thing yeah, he, had, yeah. he couldn't just had he just had to say things he couldn't yeah. keep it to himself it was quite yes. it's funny now in hindsight yeah. like at the time obviously super hard to be him yeah and I'm yeah. sure yeah like really stressful yeah for him yeah yeah I know um you specialize with like children a lot and families mm. but if there was anyone who was considering I guess from both aspects if you are a mum and you're listening or like you're a dad and you're listening and you wanted to go to a psychology appointment, what is something that they can expect or like what's the kind of yeah routine, I guess? Yeah, yeah. So I guess if the question is specific to their child, often what will happen is that first appointment or so will be a lot of interview with the parents themselves to understand more about okay what is going on what are the goals that they want out of like coming to to see a psychologist what are their questions and then also getting that really thorough history about Mm -hmm. their child's development and and what's been going on starting back from when when they were born kind of thing because we want to get a, a really thorough picture of um, child's life and, and also the family life. That's important to know for, for parents that um, come to the first appointment because sometimes what I used to find in private practice was that people were really stressed about what was going on so they kind of wanted to know the strategies or know the in- interventions like first off they'd be like okay this is what's going on what, what do we do you know just like tell me now mm. let's start doing it but it's really important to be able to know the whole situation first before sort of providing those recommendations because we want to make sure we're on on the right track. So the first appointment will often be – and even people wanting to come for themselves, like if you've got your own issues going on and you want to see a psychologist, the first appointment will often be about just getting as much information as possible, sort of going through lots of questions about your life and anything else going on and then depending on I guess who who you see but there'll there'll be a plan of action then put put in place so either like maybe at the end of the first appointment or maybe at the second appointment when when you come back the psychologist or I know in my experience anyways usually around the second appointment when the parents come back with their kids I'll say okay you know so after that this is what I'm thinking like this is our plan of of action we have one appointment every week we'll start with this if they're using a mental health care plan and getting like the Medicare rebates you can get like a maximum of 10 sessions a year so that's usually what we'll like work around so the maximum amount usually it's the first six so we see what we can do after like six sessions see if we need a few more so private practice anyways that's what we'll um, well that's what I used to sort of keep in mind that okay well Medicare is going to be able to rebate 10 sessions families would often want to like keep it at the rebateable session so mm-hmm. we'll we'll keep that in mind yep. is that per year like 10 per year yeah, or yeah. yeah and that's for personal like not family well that's for, for it would be if, for me too um, if you've got a you can go to the gp and if you've got um you know the, the gp can write what's called like a mental health care plan to address you know say your anxiety or there's there's certain rules about the mental health care plan like it's got to be there's got to be a specific diagnosis that you're sort of working on. And then, yeah, so it can be for yourself. It can, you know, children can even have mental health care plans if they've got a, like a diagnosis or they've, if they've got um, something, you know, psychological going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Julia, what's what's happening to the brain when people are suffering with um, different health issues? Again, massive broad question. Yeah. But is there like, is there something chemically going on that in a nutshell you can kind of share um, with us I guess everything that we experience has to do with what's happening in our brains but I guess just a very brief answer like when when you are experiencing depression anxiety those kinds of things there are processes that your brain is is going through so for example like um you know in people with depression they 
aren't producing like enough dopamine and that's why um, medications help because in in those sort of circumstances some medications help the brain produce those chemicals and those chemical reactions that help people feel happy again or just like balance out their sort of emotions a bit more in like with anxiety most people have have heard about is you know um when they say oh it's like that fight and flight response Mm. and that's that's part of our brain that very sort of primitive um side of our brain that develops first our amygdala sort of the emotional center but when we're in a state of of stress that sort of fight and flight well fight flight and freeze response is responsible for a, a lot of our emotional sort of um responses and, and experiences and with um anxiety what's happening is that that part of your brain is sensing you know that something is a threat and so it's kind of like switching on and saying okay this is a scary thing um we better start you know either getting ready to fight or to to run or to freeze and so that's definitely coming from that very you know that very basic primal sort of brain yeah exactly oh, right, yeah. no no well and, and and it is primal because if we think about where that started like when we were i don't know like cavemen the thing that was anxiety producing for us was you know a bear um, running a bear from a bear. or something <laughs> and so it, it would be adaptive mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. run or to fight and so what it does to your body is get your body oh my gosh <laughs> that's what it does to your body yeah yeah, yeah so totally getting i feel you girl um <laughs> getting ready priming your body to to run so that's why when people feel anxious sometimes you know you can get like a dry mouth Mm. you start feeling butterflies in your tummy Mm. um you you know there's there's certain sort of physiological signs that you know you're getting anxious because from a primitive standpoint your body is literally getting ready for you to run or fight but the threat nowadays isn't like a scary animal or anything. It's like, oh, I've got a speech tomorrow, mm. you know, so it's not adaptive for us anymore, but it's still the way that our brain kind of reacts to those like threatening or what it perceives as as threatening stimuli. Yeah, yeah. I've heard, yeah, stage fright is like a, a massive one for a lot of people mm. in the everyday anxiety world. Um, for me personally, because I've, I've had anxiety um, quite badly since I've been a kid mm. and for me it, it comes on when I'm worried that someone's not answering their phone or they should be oh, okay. at home in time. Yeah. And if they're not, my brain goes to all the worst possible mm. scenarios. And I, I get a whole range of symptoms that come on. Like I have to go to the toilet mm. every two minutes and like mm. do a million wees. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I like, <laughs> it's too much information. <laughs> yeah. But like I, I freak out. Like I, I can't focus on anything but that until I know that person's okay and they ring mm. me back. Mm. And like that wow. takes over me and, mm. and I'm – I've been to psychologists about about that problem, but yeah, it's it's um it's interesting how it affects us all differently. Mm. Like, there's mm. no cookie cut yeah. way to experience yeah. anxiety. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, leading on from that question, what we know, it's a really challenging time for a lot of people at the moment. If you could give any um, applicable tools or any tips for anyone that was feeling anxious or experiencing some negative mental health. Yeah, do you have any tips that you could share? I think one of the, I guess, one of the big things now is just like social isolation Mm -hmm. because of, you know, people either like being unable to travel and, you know, some for a lot of people like see their family or um, connect with people in the way that they used to, people that are currently in lockdown, like literally not seeing people that are, you know, within their same postcode kind of thing. And that we know in in psychology, loneliness and social isolation is a really big risk factor for mental health difficulties. Mm. Like we know that it's just as as bad for you as some other things that, you know, you'd think like, oh, that can't be good for your mental health. But we know that social connectedness is a really important tool for mental health and thriving. So... One of the things to keep in mind, people have been really good with like doing the Zooms and keeping in touch, you know, via that way. But I definitely encourage, I guess, try and still maintain those social connections and interactions because there is something to say for, you know, that social connectedness and not just like 
being on social media because there's no real back and forth with that. You can just yeah. scroll and not really get anything back from it. But, mm-hmm. you know, calling a friend or setting up a Zoom or going for a walk. Um, at, uh, the other thing that definitely um, impacts our mental health a lot is actually getting out into nature. I know it sounds so like just like, oh, well, if it was that easy, you know, then no, it genuinely no, does, no one it? would have any like problems. Yeah. But I like it's something people often forget yeah. because it is so, so – It seems so simple. I know. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, and when you're in the, the thick of it, you really aren't thinking like, okay, like how is this going to change anything in my life just going out for a walk? But mm-hmm. it is it is definitely, you know, it, it does help your mental health. The three kind of – underlying things that we always think about especially in my job at the moment as well working with kids is um like sleep diet and exercise it's kind of like you got to have your basic needs met before you can start doing the work you know some of these therapies that we do like cognitive behavioral therapy or addressing any any other sort of things you have to make sure that those that your basic needs so that you're sleeping well you're eating well and, you know, you're, you're getting a bit of exercise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess to, to listeners, like, it sometimes seems daunting wanting to start, okay, where where do I start with trying to help myself? Look at those three sort of pillars. Make sure that you've got a healthy amount of, of those um, basic needs met and then kind of, like, build from there. Yeah, yeah. that's really good advice. Yeah, because you are a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much, Julia. It's been genuinely so interesting oh, that's having so you glad. on the show. Yeah, it's been amazing. I've learned so so much, and I'm sure oh, everyone you. listening will as well. Yeah, I hope so. I hope I haven't um, babbled on too much, but not yeah. at all. <laughs> Obviously, on maternity leave, so this is like getting my juices flowing yeah. again. So it's, it's been good. <laughs> well, we've inspired each other. There yeah. you go. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's chat. If you loved what we had to say, hit subscribe, leave us a review, and find us on Instagram at Some Would Say Podcast. Talk then. <laughs>